obsolescence is something that will be around for a long time to come. You know, it's very difficult to be able to design a part or an item to make sure that there is no obsolescence, right? Unfortunately, when you're dealing with mechanical, electrical, electronic parts, eventually there is a life to every one of these things. And so we have a very creative way of being able to handle it. This is DIV Innovators, the show that celebrates the brilliant minds behind the technology and innovations that keeps our country safe. Here's your host, Dave Graff, co-founder of Radical. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sam Thaven-Nyagam, president and CEO of two companies founded on aerospace and defense systems, Parts Life, Inc., and of all lifecycle support. Sam, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me on, David. I look forward to it. That's going to be great. To kick things off, I just want to say <laughs> it's an honor meeting with you, talking with you, and you know some of the prep for this. Just a very cool story and background you have. Your mission, life mission, company vision is inspiring. So I wanted to touch base on what your LinkedIn headline you know, states and just hear a little bit more about it. So it says, I seek to glorify God and the freedom he has given me through my work. I do so by leading high-performing teams to achieve our company mission by serving the U.S. warfighter and taxpayer, improving mission readiness in the U.S. Department of Defense's expansive and mission-critical assets. I can't wait to peel back the onion on your journey to get there, but can you share a little bit about this statement and the importance to your companies on a bigger scale and on a bigger scale to our nation and warfighters? I appreciate that, yes. And so I was in a meeting yesterday with some folks from the Department of Labor, and one of the things I said to them is that I'm a man of faith. And what does that mean is, you know, I have a belief system that, you know, we are all created by God, that we were all created in His image. And so in the work that I do, I really want to glorify God. You know, I want to glorify God through excellence. I recognize that we are all human beings, that we are here put in for a purpose and potential. I believe that purpose and potential is God's responsibility, but my responsibility is to create an environment. So as a business owner, I work hard on creating an environment. You know, one of the people that worked for me said to me, you know, Sam, I'm like a fish, but I need water in order to be able to swim, right? Because if you think about it, fish out of water, you know, we can say that, right? They're not able to be in their natural habitat and then are not able to fulfill their purpose or potential. So as a business owner, yes, I see myself taking care of the warfighter and the taxpayer. I realize that most of your audience is in the defense industrial base, and it's very important for me as a defense contractor not only to take care of the warfighter, but to do that while being able to create value for the taxpayer. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that I grew up in a third world country and I recognize the importance of being good stewards, right? So if you can't pay your bills, you know, like the country that I've come from is riddled in debt, right? So I learned from that. I realized that part of being a strong nation is that we need to be fiscally responsible. But that starts with me and my organization. And so, you know, we can talk a little bit more about how we do that on a daily basis but that is all part of the fiber of my being. And so I make sure that that comes out in the way that we do our work. Oh, it's fantastic. 
yeah, just having that bigger purpose helps align everything. I love where you're coming from. Fantastic. Well, can you share a little bit more then about the background, you know, share with the you know audience where you've come from and uh, the journey to get you to where you're at now with Parks Life? Yeah. So I grew up in the island of Sri Lanka. I grew up in a middle-class home. My father was an army officer. He went to Sanders Military Academy in England, which is the Royal Military Academy is kind of how West Point is. Yep. West Point and like the Naval Academy are all fashioned after what Sanders uh, stood for. And so I grew up as an army officer's son, recognizing and understanding what service looked like. My mother was a teacher. So service was fiber of my being, I would say, you know, growing up. And then I was a late bloomer, came to this country at 22 years old, went to a small community college in Michigan, and then went to Oral Roberts University, got a degree in marketing, and then was hired from Oral Roberts University to work for the largest privately held remanufacturer of auto parts in the world. It was a company called Cardone Industries in Philadelphia. So I went to work for them in 1988. And, you know, I learned a lot about remanufacturing. I learned a lot about reverse logistics. And so I had a lot of responsibility in very key areas and learned all about the remanufacturing business. And in 2000, because of a mistake that I made, I had to leave Cardone and I had a very strict non-compete. So I went to work in a different industry. I worked in the mobile construction business for seven years as a consultant. And in 2007, I started Parts Life. So when I created Parts Life, the idea and the desire was to go back into automotive, which is the industry that I had left. But if you think in terms of 2007 and 2008, it was very difficult time in the economy and very difficult time for the automotive business. So I had to pivot away from the automotive as a way to be able to fend for my family, feed my family. And so I found that the defense business had a huge issue with something that they called DMS-MS. It stands for Diminishing Manufacturing Sources and Material Shortages. Another way to describe it is the word obsolescence. And so assets are used beyond the life that it was intended to or because OEMs are no longer able to support something, there are a lot of material shortages that happen. And that is true today. I recently looked at the fleet readiness chart. A lot of issues are around DMSMS and obsolescence and part supply. So I went to work in fashioning a process as a way to be able to supply these parts to the US military. And so I'm happy to tell you that today, we are on the B-52 bomber and, and various other critical platforms that are responsible for this nation's defense. We are on many of those platforms because of the work that we have done. Yeah, super important. And it is shocking for those that don't know how quickly things go into DMS status. Once a line shuts down, it happens yeah. fast. <laughs> and then you've got the B-52 last delivered in 1962. So that has been around for a while. I'm just curious, how do you go about this? Is it just a matter of getting the plans for like the old plans from, you know, one of the suppliers and you, know, you work a deal to get that and then you create the machinery to build that? Or how does the process work? So the customized process that I created starts with any information that we have, right? As an entrepreneur, one of the concepts that I teach in entrepreneurship is start with what you have right? So in some cases, you may have an old technical data package. 
In many cases, the technical data package is incomplete and doesn't have all of the information. So we scrub what data is available, then we go to a sample, we will take mating parts. And what we are doing is reconstructing, if you will, that technical data package so that we can actually build parts out of it. So there is no secret sauce to this. You know, I have a very documented process. I was able to flowchart it and I was able to go to the DOD and to build consensus around the fact that this is the right way to be able to do that. And so, you know, it's like going to a Japanese restaurant, right? When you go to a Japanese restaurant and you see the cook cooking in front of you, you say, wow, you know, if I was to do that, I would do exactly the same thing. But thank God, I don't have to do it. You are going to do it for me, right? That's exactly the concept that I'm following, making sure I have a well thought out, clear process that I'm telling my customer, here is exactly how I'm going to do what I do. And it's called the rope process, rapid obsolescence, planning and execution. So DMS MS, if you will, is the headache. My process called rope is the Tylenol for that headache. And so rather than do it part by part, I created a process by which how we would actually recreate a technical data package. Then from that, create a prototype, make sure that prototype is tested and tried. And then usually after that, we are going to low rate production because we are not talking about huge volumes, right? We are talking about small volumes, but you know, it's like going to the carnival and doing whack-a-mole. You know, you take care of one thing, something else pops up, right? So obsolescence is something that will be around for a long time to come. You know, it's very difficult to be able to design a part or an item to make sure that there is no obsolescence, right? Unfortunately, when you're dealing with mechanical, electrical, electronic parts, eventually there is a life to every one of these things. And so we have a very creative way of being able to handle it. It's not sexy, but it works. Here, here. <laughs> yeah. Where this is going, is it taking into account advanced manufacturing? Are you able to start incorporating some of those technologies to make those both quicker, maybe more reliable or consistent and able to change? Yes, absolutely. So we have invested in a lot of new technology in making sure that we're able to do measurements much faster. As you realize, as you know, cameras have got very, very precise today. So we are able to get much better dimensionals, tolerances, being able to have uh, ways to being able to measure stuff right away, much faster, much quicker. That's number one. Number two, with regard to understanding materials, you know, we are able to do FDIR scanning as a way to be able to get right to the types of material and the right chemistry. So we have actually been able to use technology and to use advanced manufacturing to be able to be much faster, much quicker, and to be able to scale these processes. We are using some additive manufacturing in the form of being able to create molds, in the form of being able to create models. We are still not able to substitute subtractive manufacturing with additive manufacturing. And the reason for that is anytime you are now changing the method of how that part was made, you are actually bringing variability into the process. And as you know, like a golf swing, you don't want variability, right? Less variability, better quality. And so we are using all types of advanced manufacturing as a way to be able to scale, but there is a time and a place for how it is applied 
and how we can actually improve our processes. So everything is at play to make sure that we are doing a good job. Oh, very interesting. Is there, this is just me pontificating here. Is there an ability, you know, a lot of parts are probably just in time, you know, development. So even if the supply chain's open and running, where let's say in combat operations or austere environments, they've come to you for, we need something quick. We don't have time to go back to the, you know, where the part shop is completely out of these. Have you been asked to do that before? Yes, absolutely. In many cases, some of the prototypes that we actually provide our customers for testing, they end up actually being used on a fleet. You know, we had a recent situation where a, where a part that we had made for Obama, it was a critical part that we made for Obama. It was only made to actually prove out our process. We found out from the program manager, they actually sent it to the fleet to actually be used by the fleet. So we are constantly in that mode. And it's very interesting, just outside my office, I have a carcass of a jet ski and we use that in our onboarding process. So I, I talk about a jet ski culture, right? Meaning you have to be fast, you have to be flexible. And then of course, when you are fast and flexible, guess what, you can have fun. So I'm talking to an F-22 pilot, so you know what that's like when you're going fast and you have the flexibility, right? There is an amazing rush that goes along with that. I haven't experienced that, but I can only imagine the closest I could come to is being on a jet ski, right? But I tell my team, that's the way we need to be. Like it would be like a football coach telling a player, listen, you need to have quick feet in order to be successful in football. So in order to work at Parts Life or the companies that I own, you need to be fast, you need to be flexible, and oh, by the way, we can have fun doing that. Absolutely. When you were talking about football, were you talking about soccer or football? Actually, football. So, <laughs> okay, so, good. <laughs> so, so I grew up playing soccer, but the good news is I've had sons who played football and they played it at the D1 level. So oh, wow. I have been around football. I've been around American football and appreciate and understand it. That's great. We have a lot of analogies, and you did have a TEDx talk called The First 10 Runs and Singles, Cricket Answers Life Challenges. Without, I mean, obviously it was a TED talk, so we could go for 45 minutes just on that. But could you give a quick summary? I thought, you know, as I listened to a very interesting, but just for our audience, how do you make that analogy or relationships that would be useful for folks, you know, in business? Right. So if you think about it, Joe Parr, who was the former Penn State coach, I have a very good friend of mine who played football for him. He said that he used the game of football to teach the game of life. He used the game of football to teach the game of life. There is so much that we can learn from sport, you know, and uh, this past weekend, I spent at a volleyball tournament with my daughter. You know, my 15-year-old daughter just started playing volleyball, and it's a fairly expensive sport, especially when you're playing club volleyball. But my wife said, honey, you know, every cent that we are paying towards this sport is an investment. And I said, absolutely, because that's where you learn to win and to lose, how to be part of a team, how to take responsibility, even when it was not your mistake that your team lost, right? But you have to suck it up and to be able to get back there and practice. There's so much that we can learn from sports. And so the game that I grew up playing in Sri Lanka was the game of cricket. And so, you know, very quickly, you know, just like in baseball, you have to step into the ball when you're hitting the ball, right? It's not like golf. You don't stand in one place. You step into it. You lean into it. So I talk about taking initiative, right? Initiative is so important in life 
right, to go after a job, to go after an assignment. Like I was talking to my daughter yesterday and I said, honey, how come you don't serve yet? And she said, well, one of my personal goals is to learn how to set because once I learn how to set, then they'll also let me be a server in the game, right? So I was excited about the fact that she on her own took agency in saying, you know, I already talked to the coach about teaching me how to set. So initiative is so important in life. It's so important in entrepreneurship. It's so important for a human being to be successful. You know, even if you look at scripture over and over and over again, you know, it's the people that showed initiative. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the woman who had the issue of blood. You know, she actually reached out and touched Jesus. And because she reached out and did that, you know, which was, if you think about it, in that day, it was culturally taboo for a woman to actually reach out and touch a man like that, especially a man with that kind of, you know, popularity and status, right? But yet, the fact that she reached out and did that healed her, right? So initiative is so important. The other thing I talk about is, just one more example, is the googly. You know, googly is a leg break that turns like an off break. And I talk about discernment right? Discernment is so important for life. It's important to be able to discern people. It's important for us to be able to discern seasons. It's important for us to be able to be discerning in every situation. And I didn't grow up learning to read the googly. It's something that I learned by making mistakes, right? And so that's true in life. So much of what we are going to learn is by learning through mistakes. So it's a great way to be able to teach young people, you know, so I used the game of cricket to teach the game of life. And if you think about Jesus, right, he used a lot of examples from that day in order to teach. You know, he was from an agrarian society, so he talked about sowing and reaping, and he talked about, you know, things like from farming. He talked about being a good shepherd, because at that time people were shepherds, right, and, you know, they reared sheep. So I think it's important for us as leaders, as teachers, that we are able to take examples and situations from what is familiar to be able to teach those things that may be not so familiar for us. That is so effective. I couldn't agree more. And uh, those are great, great analogies there and you know, stories of how to make that bond with folks in this world. I mean, yep. got to make it relatable. Yep. Very good. Well, because of, you know, you are focused on military DMS, that's working within the defense industrial base, working with the government. What do you enjoy about that? Is there any you know, specific piece that comes from that or excitement to working with the defense industrial base? I can tell you, you know, in every season of my life, I have been excited about something different. Today, what I'm excited about is being a good steward, right? Because if I think about, if you look, but go back to the Bible and you think about people like Joseph, like who was the prime minister of Egypt, have been to Egypt, you know, I've been on the Nile and I kind of appreciate who he was. You know, God elevated him to a position of very high authority. You look at a person like Nehemiah, whom God used to build a wall, right? If you think about these two men, you know, they were responsible for taxpayers' money. Not a lot of people have that insight. They don't recognize Nehemiah built the wall. The king gave him the money. Where does the king get the money? He was using taxpayers' money right? So we all have seen taxpayer money, you know, taxes being wasted, right? Because there is no good stewardship around it. 
I believe that part of my responsibility is not only to be a good steward of the resources that God has entrusted with me, but it's important for me to be able to influence and shape the money that is being spent out there by government, right? So recently I've been working with the Department of Labor rather than sit and complain as a taxpayer about how our taxes are being dispersed and being misspent, you know, I am working on creating an agenda by how to create work, right? A big part of what I do is creating work as an entrepreneur, but part of that is making sure that I'm bringing people along, I'm enabling people, I'm enabling and providing them, you know, education and training as a way to be able for them to become better at their jobs. You know, recently I had an opportunity to address the Secretary of the Navy, you know, and there is a huge shortage in the industrial defense base of qualified people. So part of my responsibility is I'm really working on qualifying those people that are out there, returning citizens, veterans, people who are refugees, who are coming here and need to work, right? The amazing thing, the differentiator about America is that America, you know, we believe in the free enterprise system. It's important for people to work. And so I am really charged up and passionate about being able to bring people along in their work. I've gone out and hired a machining trainer. Again, to use a baseball analogy, you know, you look at a pitching coach, right? If you think about the Phillies pitching coach, he's responsible for coaching about 11 to 12 pitchers, starting pitchers and relief pitchers and finishing pitchers on really working on their craft, right? And that's exactly what I've done. I went out and hired a machining trainer and I'm teaching people how to do machining because if you think about it, machining, welding, and quality inspection are difficult roles to hire for. So rather than complain about that, I've taken the bull by the horns and I've actually created with my own dime. I've invested my own money to be able to go out and hire a machining trainer to do that. We've just hired a welding instructor and I'm going to bring curriculum along to be able to teach welding. So I have taken a responsibility agency to make sure that I'm training the people that we need. And by doing that, you know, I'm creating an entire ecosystem. So I'm working with high schools, I'm working with community colleges, I'm on an advisory board of a university. I'm making sure that I'm influencing the entire ecosystem so that we can build a stronger community, you know, and part of being in the American dream is to be able to work. And then the second thing is to be able to create, to be able to own your own house, right? I read a book written by a, a Chilean economist called Mystery of Capital. It talks about the fact that the number one way that you create collateral in a capitalistic society is through home ownership. So I have helped 24 people in my organization buy their first home. We have a help you buy program as a way to be able to do that. Because when somebody owns their own home, they have agency, you know, they become part of the community, and that builds a stronger America. So these are things I believe in. You know, I'm hoping and praying that, you know, more people will come to know of the work that we do. We already have some people who are attracted by what we are doing, but I'm not doing this for anybody else, right? I'm trying to make a difference where I live and where I work. That's very important to me. And if other people can see what we're doing and be able to come and understand it and model it and scale it, then so be it. That is inspiring. Thank you. Uh, yeah, because it is super challenging that 
you know, just the way our education system and society, those are skill sets that are super valuable, challenging to get in if you're not in that space already, but also not revered as important. You know, the yeah. importance of it's gone down. So that, that is awesome. And working with that, because the defense, you know, DOD is a challenging customer. Yep. What challenges have you faced with working with the defense and how have you overcome those? So currently, I'm in the process of writing a white paper as a way to be able to build consensus around an issue that I'm very focused on. You know, I read recently that defining a problem accurately is half the solution. So it's important for us as leaders to be able to define the problem accurately, because once you frame something, now it's half the solution. It's a pathway to a solution. So one of the ways, and I like to work on solving big problems, and a big problem right now is as the age of aircrafts and ships get older, many of these platforms are not necessarily putting budgets in place in order to take care of older aircrafts. But we do this in our personal lives. You know, I just turned 60 almost a year ago. If you can tell, I'm sure you can't tell, but, you know, I have had to spend a little bit more money on maintenance, right, on healthcare issues that slowly start to creep up. And that's so true even on older aircrafts and older ship systems and older, you know, land systems. You need to be able to have a way to be able to put budgets together and then to be able to have contracting vehicles in place in order to be able to reach the industrial base in order to be able to do that type of work. And then some of this has to be away from the OEM because many of the OEMs are not set up to be able to have cradle to grave responsibility. You know, at a certain point, they are back making the brand new and shiny thing. They're not necessarily interested in being able to support the end of life stuff, right? And so it's a challenge that the largest and the most effective defense force in the world does not have a process to plan for end of life or older vehicles. And also, you know, maybe different contracting mechanisms to do that. So what I am in the process of doing is bringing attention to that issue and also providing some solutions to say, here may be a way for us to be able to attack this issue. And uh, I'm in the process of, you know, tweaking it and continuing to shape it so that I can get that to the right people and make sure that at the SES level, at the admiral level, that we are addressing these issues and trying to figure out a way to bring change, right? Because the Department of Defense is a huge bureaucracy. It's not an easy place to be able to penetrate. It's not an easy place to influence but there is a way to do that, you know, and so part of my responsibility is to be on the cutting edge of being able to do that. I love that. It's so easy to, you know, just whine or complain about the challenges that the Defense Department has and the policies that follow that. But I mean, you hear it now with F-35, the sustainment costs are out of control. Yep. But no one, you know, no one that's touching you know, the DMS portion of what you're doing and, and has the ability that it also is trying to be wise with the expenditure of capitals, helping to come up with solutions. I think that's, that's where the, you're right. That is where the answers are going to come from. It's not going to yep. come from the giant, you know, bureaucracy right. in the sky. Yep. Yeah, True. That's great. Very good. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, because you're making a lot of key critical parts, are you concerned at all about, I know you said it's not a secret sauce, but protecting your IP, protecting the parts potentially they're going to, 
you know, some of these war machines or, you know, equipment out there? And do you see that there's threats of, you know, some of our adversaries looking to steal some of this IP in your space, or is it mostly so old that it doesn't really matter? No, I'm sure that, you know, we have to be extremely careful because there are bad actors all around. You know, they would love to get into and, and taint our supply system. So we are very careful. You know, we have a lot of uh, very stringent process, you know, with regard to understanding the thread of where these items come from, where they originated, where they're going to go. We have a very simple model because we are the prime and we are working specifically and directly with the Department of Defense. There is very few, so we are not selling through intermediaries. We are selling directly to the government on one side or to a prime contractor. So a transaction is fairly simple on the customer side. On the supplier side, we have to be careful because there are vulnerabilities about counterfeit parts, you know, parts that are compromised. So we are very, very careful in making sure how we source the parts that we are sourcing. We are always adding value to it. So we are not just an integrator in many ways. So I started Parts Life as an engineering company, and then I went out and bought two other companies and an asset of another company as a way to be able to virtually integrate and to make sure that I have more flexibility, have more capacity and capability in order to take care of my customers. So there is real threats out there, and we've got to be diligent to make sure that we are doing our part. You know, just to give you a quick example, I was at the DMC conference in Nashville with my team, and I saw that an individual was at our trade booth, and I did not like the sounds of that conversation with one of our young engineers. And my young engineer, he was so willing to please that he was providing a lot of information to this person. But after this person left and I had some time to talk to my young engineer, I said to him, hey, you got to be a little careful about who you're talking to and what information we are providing. And that was on me because, you know, I had not given him that spiel yet, right? But I had to teach him and say to him, listen, not everybody who comes to our booth is a friend and is looking to do business with us. You know, industrial espionage is a real thing and it's our responsibility Again, right, it's reading the googly, right? We have to have discernment about these things. So we need to be vigilant. You know, again, you go back to scripture. It talked about Nehemiah when he was building the wall, right? Not only was he building, but he had to make sure that his troops were also keeping their eyes open to the horizon because there were many people, there were enemies who did not want that wall built, right? So, you know, like a good football team, Right, like Michigan did yesterday, not only did they have to play good offense, they also had to play good defense in order to win the national championship. And that's so true in business, right? We need to be able to have good offense, good attack, but we got to make sure we defend, defend the homeland, defend the fort, defend the company so that we are not leaching and leaking information. Important. Absolutely. That's great. So if you were to give any advice to any, you know, entrepreneurs looking to succeed, you know, in this space, working with the government, or, I mean, you've got so many great life stories, just what would be some of your recommendations for young, young folks that want to start something new, uh, take that leap of faith? Yep. I would say three things, right? Start with what you have, right? God has given us a plan and a purpose. He has created us and he's given us unique abilities and talents. So you have to start with what you have, number one. Number two, creativity before capital. 
right? So you don't throw money at something. You have to, it's an idea problem. So you have to be creative and you have to find a solution and you have to figure out a problem and come up with the solution for that problem, right? So just to say I'm in business and just to say I'm a me too does not take care of it. So what is your unique value proposition? What is it that you can do in order to solve a customer problem? So my solution was the rope solution to the DMS issue, right? And it took a while for them to recognize and understand it. But guess what? I had a solution. I was very confident that my solution would take care of the problem that the customer had. And number three, fail fast, right? Don't wait for everything to be perfect, right? You got to start something and you got to be able to iterate as a way to be able to create your company. If you're looking for perfection, if you're looking for everything to be there before you start, it may not be the right way to do it. You learn by doing, right? So I have had to continue to learn and do and then execute and then keep, you know, it's like cooking, right? You have to taste it and see whether you need to add something or take away from it. So I teach a little bit on entrepreneurship. And so these are the three main things that I teach, you know, start with what you have, creativity before capital, fail fast, and then know, know it like the dirt under your fingernails, right? You must understand and know your business. And so I tell a lot of young people, you know, it's not a bad idea to work for somebody else for a while. Because like, I'll go back to who I am and how I grew up. I grew up in a middle-class family where profit was a bad word, right? My father and mother were both about service, right? So how did I become, you know, have a capitalistic mindset, have an entrepreneurial mindset? A lot of it was where I worked, you know, the mentors that I had. So I was always entrepreneurial, but it had to be shaped, right? I had to learn. And it took me a while to do that. So I would tell people, you know, there is a time and a season for that. And so if the season is not now, it's not a bad idea to work for somebody else and to get some life experience before you start something. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, Sam, pretty inspiring uh, listening to you. I mean, your leadership motto, as you've said, is create an environment where others can achieve their God-given potential. And just talking to you today, I feel like I've grown. So I really appreciate your perspective and leadership both in life and, you know, trying to take care of, you know, spending our citizens' tax dollars wisely and bringing capability to our warfighters to protecting these freedoms that we've talked about. Yep. Amen. Amen. So I think, fortunately, that's about all the time we have covered today. But if folks want to, you know, look more into, you've got the TEDx, you've got uh, some other, you know, material out there, collateral, how best to find you and that information? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I'm, I have a presence on LinkedIn. Because, you know, I feel like I have something to say and I say it on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn would be a great way to connect with me. And I also have a foundation in memory of my parents called the Sam T Foundation. It's another way to find me. But no, so I appreciate you having me on and giving me a flat platform to speak. And I appreciate you and the audience that you serve. Well, thank you, Sam. And uh, let's keep in touch. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you. God Please. bless. Thank you for listening to another episode of DIB Innovators brought to you by Radical. For the latest episodes, search DIB Innovators on your podcast platform of choice or visit us at Radical.com, R-A-D-I-C-L.com.